Well, things have gotten a little crazy the past few weeks. recording this currently uh Wednesday morning. I think if you had told me um even last Wednesday where we would be as a society this isn't what I would have said. Um <laughs> this is a very ad hoc episode I'm going to warn you uh because it is uh it, it's not our original episode and it has nothing to do with criminal history although Part of the reason I wanted to put this out is A, I've been wanting to put out some more bonus content for you guys, and B, because criminal history is one of my specialties, one of the others is epidemiological history. And this is kind of awful because it means that um, all I can think about when I, as all this is going down is this is going to make a great book in 30 years, but for people who live through pandemics, it's never great. So I don't want to uh, just be another voice in the room. It seems that everybody is now an expert on the coronavirus, and uh, that is certainly not the case for me. What I do know, though, is how pandemics affect society. And that's the part that I want to focus on today. When I first was beginning to gather up some of the research for this episode that I had on hand, I was uh, trying to think about, like, how, how do I even get people to, to take this seriously. But at this point, I think enough people take it seriously that I don't have to make the point that um, diseases are really bad. In fact, disease is the number one killer in human history. Pandemics are, until the nuclear weapons became invented, were the only thing that really threatened to wipe off humanity from the face of the earth bar some, like, asteroid hitting us or something. So, um... But now that we are a couple weeks into this, it seems that people are clued in that life is not going to be normal for a while. But of course, the parts that people uh, clue into aren't exactly the parts that I would clue into as an epidemiological historian. Because the first place that people want to look at is the death rate, right? In fact, that's typically what they do. If I had to compare this pandemic to that pandemic... Which one is worse? They always go by, well, how many people died. And sometimes it's like the percentage ratio of people who died. We can take something like um, the uh, Black Death, which killed somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of the uh, world population. Or we can take something like the Spanish Flu, which only comparatively killed like 3 to 5 percent. But of course, then you could look at the numbers. The Spanish Flu, even though it killed uh, less of a percentage of people, ended up killing more than the Black Death ever did. So most people will focus on this, and there's an obvious reason why, because it's really viscerally scary. Whenever we read accounts in history about pandemics, they always emphasize death first, and oftentimes in ways that freak us out for good reason. Let's take um, the Plague of Justinian. This is a plague that hits um, at different periods of time, but I'm specifically looking at uh, 541 AD when it hits Constantinople. 
And John of Ephesus writes in his Chronicles some of the most disturbing accounts of a pandemic in history. Quote, When thus the scourge weighed heavy upon this city, first it eagerly began to assault the classes of the poor who lay in the streets. It happened that 5,000 and 7,000 or even 12,000 and as many as 16,000 of them departed this world in a single day. Since thus far it was only the beginning, men were standing by the harbors, at the crossroads, and at the gates counting the dead. Thus, having perished, they were shrouded with great diligence and buried. They departed this life being clothed and followed to the grave by everybody. Thus the people of Constantinople reached the point of disappearing, only few remaining, whereas of those who had died on the streets, if anybody wants us to name their number, for in fact they were counted, over 300,000 were taken off the streets. Those who counted, having reached the number of 230,000, and seeing the dead were innumerable, gave up reckoning, and from then on the corpses were brought out without being counted. Standing on the seashore, one could see litters colliding with each other, and coming back to carry and to throw upon the earth two or three corpses, to go back again and to bring farther corpses. Others carried the corpses on boards and carrying poles, bringing and piling them up one upon another. For other corpses, since they had rotted and putrefied, matting was sewn together. People bore them on carrying poles, and coming to the shore threw them down with pus running out of them and then they would return, bringing the bodies again. Others who were standing on the seashore dragged them and threw them down upon boats, piling them up in heaps of two or three and even five thousand each. Innumerable corpses piled up on the entire seashore, like flotsam on great rivers, and the pus flowed, discharging itself down into the sea. End quote. That's an image that if we even had a tenth of today... I think a lot of people would be freaking out even greater about this pandemic. Because whenever we fear pandemics, it is immediately with the idea of, well, can I get it? Or perhaps maybe, could one of my loved ones get it? Because we're afraid, at the end of the day, of death. Now here's the thing, though. Pandemics aren't scary because of how many people die. Sometimes they can be, uh, don't get me wrong. Like any of the older pandemics especially, we see these huge percentage numbers. Take something like, for example, um, the Columbian Exchange and uh, the Coccolitzi smallpox and these other diseases that ravaged Native American populations in the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. We see that possibly up to 9 out of every 10 American Indians on the continent died during those epidemics. Nine out of every ten. That is an incredible number when you think about it. And even if we go to the lower amounts, which it would be more like five out of ten or fifty percent, that's half of the population of a continent wiped out due to disease. Now, obviously, therefore, death is what is the, the most immediate factor to think about in plagues. But the reason why it's not as big of a deal is because of modern medicine. With modern medicine, we are able to combat these diseases at a much greater rate. That's not to say that it always is, works perfectly. I mean, we can look at something like 1918's uh, Spanish flu. That one, uh, we did not have some of our modern medicine today, like certain antibiotics, but at the same time, they 
understood germ theory to a much greater extent, and that still ended up with 3 to 5% of the population dying, or somewhere between 30 to 100 million people, depending on the numbers of, that you trust. So that's still a huge amount. But, importantly, it's not world-ending. No, the thing that we need to fear about when we see pandemics ravage society is what it does on the economic level and the psychological level. Because pandemics are era-ending. They end one era and start another. In some cases, because of how much death there was. But in other cases, because of just the, the consequences beyond just death. Let's take, for example, the most pressing concern right now in our current pandemic. The economic consequences. When a pandemic ravages a society, people are either dead, dying, or staying the hell away from everybody else. And that oftentimes leads to everything grinding to a halt. In economic terms, that means nothing's being made. No fields are being tended to. And the concern for everybody is how to survive, which oftentimes means that all of the physical labor and work that a person has is dedicated to just that singular concept. Let's take, for example, from the Florentine Codex in 1590, it talks about smallpox ravaging the Aztec populations. Quote, Before the Spaniards appeared to us again, first an epidemic broke out, a sickness of pustules. It began in September. Large bumps spread on people. Some were entirely covered. They spread everywhere, on the face, the head, the chest, etc. The disease brought great desolation. A great many died of it. They could no longer walk about, but lay in their dwellings in sleeping places, no longer able to move or stir. They were unable to change position, to stretch out on their side, or face down, or raise their heads, and when they made a motion, they called out loudly. The pustules that covered people caused great desolation. Very many people died of them, and many just starved to death. Starvation reigned, and no one took care of others any longer. End quote. Now, what I find fascinating about that passage is that last little bit, that not only did people die, but many starved to death. And the fact that nobody took care of each other, and or took care of the fields, is why that starvation reigned. We see almost word for word the exact same example in the history of the Indians of New Spain in 1568. Quote, The Indians did not know the remedy against smallpox. Many succumbed also to hunger, because, all taking sick at the same time, they were unable to assist one another. There was no one to give them bread or anything else. In many places, it happened that all of the same household died. Since it was impossible to bury all the dead in order to remove the offensive odor that came from the corpses, their houses were destroyed, and thus their house became their tomb. End quote. So again, if people aren't able to help one another, whether because they're sick or because they're too scared to leave their houses, this is why we see an economic downturn so quickly and so drastically. And that's the part that right now we are currently combating in our world pandemic today. Now the good news is that we now live in a society where a lot of our work is not physical labor, and a lot of it can be done in non-traditional settings, like in the home. I'm currently teleworking right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of you are going to be doing the same. So this economic downturn will probably not end with mass starvation in the United States, at least that's what we hope, but it is something to consider. But see, even the economics of it don't bother me that much. 
I mean, it's awful. People are going to lose their jobs. People are going to lose their livelihoods. But what I notice the most whenever I read epidemiological history is the consequences it has on the very zeitgeist of a generation, for good and for ill. For example, probably the best-known plague, the Black Death, was so severe that it led to the very end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern society, which I guess is great for us in modern society, not so great back then. Giovanni Boccaccio in the Decameron around 1350 explains this, quote, All tended to a very barbarous conclusion, namely, to shun and flee from the sick and all that pertained to them, and thus doing, each thought to secure immunity for himself. Some, there were, who conceived that to live moderately and keep oneself from all excess was the best defense against such a danger. They live removed from everyone, and shut themselves up in those houses where none had been sick and where living was best. And there, using very little of the most delicate foods and the finest wines, they live with music and such other diversions as they might have, never suffering themselves to speak with anyone, nor choosing to hear any news about death or sick folk. Others maintained that to carouse and make merry and go about singing and frolicking and satisfy the appetite in everything possible and laugh and scoff at whatsoever befell was a very certain remedy for such an ill. That which they said that they put into practice as best they might, going about day and night, now to this tavern, now to that, drinking without stint or measure. The condition of the common people was yet more pitiful to behold, for there these sickened by the thousand daily, and being altogether untended and unsuckered, died all without recourse. Many breathed their last in the open street, while others, many, for all died in their houses, made known to the neighbors that they were dead by the stench of their rotting bodies. And of these and others who died, all about the whole city was full. Nor therefore were the dead honored with aught of tears or candles or funeral train, Nay, the thing was come to such a pass that folk cared no more of men that died than nowadays they would of goats. End quote. So let's break that down a little bit. First, we see that there are different responses to the pandemic. For some people, it's that they live completely removed from society. For others, it was that they didn't even care. It was just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then, of course, there was the way that people were treating the dead, and death in general. In fact, the whole idea of danse macabre, this, um, this artistic movement that centers around depictions of death, becomes extremely popular during this time period, for a, a reason, because death is what is on everybody's minds. And here's the thing, as humans, we're not really designed to live like that, right? I mean, we don't think about death every single day because part of living is thinking about living, not thinking about dying. But when death is everywhere, it affects your psyche to such an extent that, as they say here, people stop thinking of the dead as sacred, which in a medieval society is a big deal. The graves of the dead themselves were no longer sacrosanct. Taken from The Black Death and the Transformation of the West by David Hearley, quote, the fear of the sick and dying easily expanded into a horror of death, into the sense that life itself was a desperate battle against death's dominion. In the 13th century, Francis of Assisi had addressed death as a sister. In plague-stricken Europe, death was no longer the kind caretaker of souls awaiting the resurrection. Many historians have noted the changing image of death in late medieval culture and art. 
It becomes a ravishing monster, the master of a dance in which all must join. One of the great masterpieces of macabre art is the tomb at Avignon of Cardinal Lagrange, done shortly before 1400. It shows the cardinal's nearly naked and decomposing body. The inscription reads, We are a spectacle to the world. Let the great and humble by our example see well to what state they shall be inexorably reduced, whatever their condition, age, or sex. Why then, miserable person, are you puffed up with pride? Dust you are, and unto dust you shall return, rotten corpse, morsel, and meal for worms. End quote. That sort of understanding of our own mortality is not healthy, at least not for your mind. Because if that's all you're going to think about, well, we've all known that one person who's a little neurotic, who's always thinking about getting sick or being in pain or dying, and if that's all they think about, well, they don't get anything done. In fact, they can't even go on living. So we try to find ways to cope, how to make death not so imminent, so scary. Quote, Death, as represented in this epitaph, vilified the body. It had become untamed. Revulsion towards death and the dead seemed reflected in the feasts and celebrations that often accompanied epidemics. Boccaccio remarks that during the pestilence, jokes and merrymaking were common at burials. Of course, plague mortality reminded survivors of their own fragile grasp on life, and prompted some of them to spend their remaining hours in revelry. The philosophy appears pedestrian. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the orgies that many witnesses describe seem also the celebration of victory, however temporary, over death. Why else should such a favored site for such behavior be graveyards? At Avignon, by the late 14th century, the cemetery of Champfleur had become, at least by repute, a place of debauchery. In 1394, a papal official threatened with excommunication those who dared to dance, fight, throw iron or wooden bars, to play with wheels, to bowl or play dice, or other unseemly games, or commit other unseemly acts over the graves of the dead. Prostitutes solicited in cemeteries, and, by the testimony of contemporaries, fornicators and adulterers tryst among the graves. End quote. When human beings are forced to confront death, then oftentimes the only way that we can deal with it is by throwing out our preconceived notions of what life is, including, in this case, some of the morality pieces. I mean, again, this is late medieval culture. They certainly were not typically okay with adultery at all, let alone in graveyards. But this is what happens. As a society, we collectively have a freakout. And it's a justified freakout, don't get me wrong. But it's understandable that this creates an effect that historically marks an era. And that is what we are currently living through right now. Make no mistake, COVID-19 is going to become a generational inflection point. Now, what that is going to look like and what that's going to mean, I have no clue. Nobody has any clue. But there is an understanding that if we don't make a response now, it's going to get worse. And I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. That's true, but it's up to us on how much worse it gets. So what do we do about it? Well, I'll tell you first what we don't do. We don't act like life is normal. We don't try to dismiss this as some sort of fake news media plot. 
See, this is actually the exact same scenario that was posed all over the rural villages of Europe when the Black Death actually hit. One of my favorite passages of any historical book is in The Black Death by Philip Ziegler. And if you haven't read that book, that is pretty much on my number one list of books for people to read if they are interested in what to do during a pandemic. Now, Ziegler takes multiple accounts of various villages and constructs a typical response of an English village to the plague. So technically, it is historical fiction, but he's taken all of these sources to show how most peasants in England reacted to the plague. You have to remember that most of medieval society was rural, and oftentimes these villages only had anywhere between like 50 to 300 people in them. And because it was a feudal society, they didn't move very much. In fact, the most somebody might travel, unless they were like a traveling merchant, would be the next town over, you know, five miles away maximum. So because of that, everything that they got was secondhand in terms of information and sources. And they would hear from travelers of this plague that slowly would be moving closer and closer to them. Oftentimes, though, they didn't react. They didn't believe it was happening. So instead of taking precautions, instead the peasants just lived their normal lives until, of course, the plague was on their doorstep. Ziegler describes such a moment in his fictional chapter, again, of a meeting between all of the peasants in the village discussing closing the town to travelers. Quote, Suddenly the parson lurched to his feet. The peasants fell silent and looked expectantly towards him, but instead of speaking, he turned away and staggered through the door. Was he overcome by anger at their lack of charity? wondered Roger nervously. Roger is the, um, the protagonist of this chapter. They watched him totter down the path towards the manor gate, reeling from one side to the other and seeming every instant about to fall. Parson had a bit too much to drink, speculated one of the villagers. As he spoke, the parson pitched forward on his face, tried to drag himself to his feet, then fell forward again and lay still. In a few seconds, Roger was at his side. His breath was coming with a heavy wheezing noise. His cheeks were so hot that Roger snatched away his hand in alarm as he touched them. They carried him to his house and pulled the clothes from his twitching, fevered body. Under both armpits and in his groin, red boils were growing, still small, but not so small that those who saw them could doubt that they were the dreaded plague about which they had heard so much. Without looking at each other, without a word, the villagers slipped from the parsonage and fled to their own houses. Against the immense peril of the plague, they had no recourse save that of prayer. End quote. Now, I know that's technically a fictional account, taken from a bunch of historical sources and then kind of thrown together by Ziegler. But it gets it at this point that oftentimes we don't react quick enough to pandemics because we don't want to be alarmist. We don't want to be the ones who are saying, hey, we got to shut down our entire village. We have to shut down the entire economy. That just sounds awful. But by the time it hits us, it's already too late. It's already spreading. And it's like closing the barn door after the horse has gone three miles away. At that point, we can't stop the pandemic from hitting us. It's now a question of how do we mitigate it. And that comes to point number two. Now that we're here, social distancing and teleworking and things being shut down, we have to understand that this is not going to be for a couple weeks. This is going to be months worth. And we have to get in that mindset right here and right now. 
And often we don't really want to. And, I, and I'll admit, I am one of those people who talks about practicing the social distancing and then wants to go out to a restaurant. I get it. But Ziegler points out that oftentimes complacency in these moments is even worse because then we continue the spread after we know that it's spreading exponentially in our community. Quote, This happened on a Monday. On Tuesday, there was no new case, and the villagers began to creep cautiously from their house and to talk together in hushed voices. On Wednesday, there was still no farther outbreak. The parson's buboes had swollen and were now inflamed and painful, but he himself had recovered consciousness and showed no signs of imminent disease. In sharp reaction to the earlier despair, a wave of almost euphoria overcame the villagers. Surely the danger of a worse outbreak must fast be passing. Most of the peasants went off to work in the village, and generally life was returning to normal. Seeing Bartholomew Thomason outside of his father-in-law's house, Roger remembered his plans for sealing off the village. With the plague already inside, there was little such point in such precautions. The next day was cold but clear. Roger rose at his usual time, looked anxiously at his family, and saw with relief that all were well. Another night safely passed. He walked outside into his garden. His aunt's house was quiet, and no smoke came from the fire. Odd, she was usually up before him. In sudden apprehension, he ran to the door. The old lady was sprawled in a heap on the ground. She must have been overcome on her way to seek help. Her face was haggard, her eyes sunken and bloodshot, her swollen tongue protruded from dry, cracked lips. She was barely conscious, but aware that Roger was beside her. Water, she croaked, in a whisper that hardly reached her nephew's ears. Water! When a pot of water was brought, she drank it down greedily. She was unable to control the movements of her tongue, and in spite of Roger's efforts, a lot of the water dribbled down her front onto the floor. When the pot was empty, she fell back exhausted, breathing, but apparently a little better, for her drink. Roger left the house to break the news to his wife. As he stepped from the hut, he heard a harsh scream from behind him. The wife of one of the villagers burst out from her house into the road. In her arms, she carried her little child. Yesterday, a healthy, cheerful boy of four months, now transformed in a few hours into a distorted and pain-wracked caricature. My baby! My baby! Her husband ran to her, and with Roger's help, mother and child were hustled back into their house. Even as they got inside the door, the child stiffened itself in a final spasm of agony and lay back dead. End quote. This is the thing. We need to understand that this is here to stay for a very long time. And in the peasant's case, after the first day went by, when no other cases presented themselves, they immediately thought, oh, well, life's going back to normal. I'm going to go ahead and continue my routine. But as we can see, it didn't. In fact, it got worse. And this is why we have to deal with this right here and right now, today, even when there's only a few cases around. In fact, nothing pisses me off more than when people are like comparing this to H1N1 back in 2009. Yes, that was currently a worse predicament of, a, of an epidemic, and we didn't freak out then. But then again, we're dealing now with a virus that has 20 times the lethality rate and is much easier to spread, oftentimes because those symptoms can't be found. That's kind of a big deal, and it's the reason why we have to react like we are alarmists. If you think you're going a little crazy about it, you're probably fine. So what are the things that we can do to prevent this disease? Well, a lot of them have been practiced for thousands of years, the biggest one being isolation. 
It's been well understood, even before the advent of germ theory, that isolating oneself from others could oftentimes mean that you would not catch any disease that was going around. For example, this is from a Cherokee oral history from the 1830s. Um, it's cited in Avoiding the Smallpox Spirits, Colonial Epidemics, and Southeastern Indian Survival. Quote, Long ago, the Indians were afflicted with some very awful diseases which do not now prevail, meaning smallpox. One of these differed from the smallpox, or yaws, yet occasioned dreadful sores in the flesh. When any one in a family was taken with that disorder, the deceased person was removed and had a hut or tent raised at a distance from any other habitation, and there lived alone. Then the priest was sent to cleanse the dwelling just left by the disease, as if some person had died in it. After this, should anyone touch the diseased, he would be unclean as if he had touched a dead body. End quote. So removing oneself from other people is certainly one of the best things that we can do. In fact, the last time that we had an epidemic on this scale, which would have been 1918's influenza, which, by the way, was also H1N1, the very first case of H1N1, which goes to show you exactly how bad a virgin soil epidemic is, that being a, a, a disease that we see for the first time that apparently we don't have much immunity to. There's a lot of environmental factors that can go into whether a population is hit harder by a disease or not, but the basis is virgin soil epidemics need to be taken more seriously than any other type of epidemic, and this coronavirus is a virgin soil epidemic. So, anyways, back to it. Um, but in 1918, if we look at the directives from Washington, D.C. regarding the treatment and procedures, um, this is what the Naval District and Shores Establishment said in September 26, 1918. And tell me that it doesn't sound a little bit familiar to what we're doing today. Quote, Protect yourself from infection, keep well, and do not get hysterical over the epidemic. Avoid being sprayed by the nose and throat secretions of others. Beware of those who are coughing and sneezing. Avoid crowded streetcars. Walk to the office if possible. Keep out of crowds. Avoid theaters, moving picture shows, and other places of public assembly. Do not travel by railroad unless absolutely necessary. Do not drink from glasses or cups which have been used by others unless you are sure they have been thoroughly cleansed. You can do much to lessen the danger to yourself by keeping in good physical condition. Avoid close, stuffy, and poorly ventilated rooms. Insist upon fresh air, but avoid disagreeable drafts. Eat simple, nourishing food and drink plenty of water. Avoid constipation. Secure at least seven hours of sleep. Avoid physical fatigue. Do not sleep or sit around in damp clothing. Keep the feet dry. If you are up and about, protect healthy persons from infection. Don't spray others with the secretions from your nose and throat in coughing, sneezing, laughing, or talking. Cover the mouth with a handkerchief. Boil your handkerchief and other contaminated articles. Wash your hands frequently. Keep away from others as much as possible while you have a cough. End quote. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like what we've been told Except for maybe we, we've got a lot more of the hand-washing. <laughs> this just kind of mentioned it at the very end. But look, it shows that these procedures in history have worked time and time again. And while they are not there to prevent you from having the disease, they're there to prevent the spread of the disease. And we're going to have to take some drastic measures in order to stop the spread. For example, and I am not suggesting that we should do this, but... 
This is just a simple example of how drastic we've had to go in the past. During the bubonic plague, when the spread of disease became the biggest concern, to prevent this, towns began to override the church by instituting boards of health that, in short, predicted whether somebody would live or die. Then those people would be placed in isolation with other sick members, where, of course, then they almost surely would die. This is from The Black Death and the Transformation of the West by David Hearley. Quote, it is, of course, not true that all families neglected their sick, treating them as if they are not their own, in Boccaccio's phrase. However, even those who tried to nurse sick relatives faced traumatic choices. Boards of health, set up in the wake of epidemics, were given sweeping powers, which they used to segregate the sick and the suspect from the healthy. By the 15th century, they characteristically removed those who were infected from their homes and families and consigned them to special, isolated hospitals— those who entered these pest houses rarely emerged, and after their death would be buried in mass graves, probably in un unconsecrated ground far from ancestors and loved ones. Many families sought to conceal the sickness of a member from their health authorities, although the punishments for doing so were drastic. Administrative records of these boards of health include many prosecutions of people who hid from the health authorities the sickness of a household member, or tried to secure a church burial for one who had died of the plague. For even if the family refused to regard a sick member as a menace and an enemy, the boards of health had no such qualms. End quote. Now obviously, we don't want to throw people who test falsely positive in with the sick when it comes to this coronavirus but obviously isolating the sick from the rest of society is important, very much the same way that these boards of health did so. And in fact, if it strikes you as uncomfortable that the boards of health were literally dictating who lived and who died, I hate to break this to you, but we're going to be living in a society for at least a few months in which the government has a lot more power and control over us. And while it might not get that far, I mean, just think of it this way. Here in Ohio, the governor just announced that all businesses are going to have to record the temperature of their employees as they come into work. And obviously, I would guess that if the employee came up as being sick, then they'd be sent home and forced to quarantine. And we're only, what, three weeks into this really hitting the news in America? This gives you an idea, though, of what to expect. Right now, we're in the beginning, and you can expect that we're going to see a lot more laws being laid down on us, and it is vitally important that we follow those laws. Because the fate of our loved ones, of our family, and our neighbors is going to rely on that. Now just to wrap up, um, before I ramble more than I have in the past 30 minutes, um, there is a positive to this. And that positive is that pandemics are era-ending but they're also era beginning. Oftentimes when a pandemic hits, the parts of society that were the weak links, they break. And then the rest of society, when we recover, can look and fix those links back again. It happens all the time. Like for example, when the Black Death hit, it ended up killing so many people that there was a huge radical shift in peasants moving from, from village to village back and forth, oftentimes taking up new professions. It, it literally brought down feudalism, because at this point, who the hell cares what a knight's going to tell you, you know, when everybody's dying? If not for the Black Death, we certainly wouldn't have the modern era as we know it today. 
And I think we're already seeing people talk about what's going to happen when everything goes back to, as far as we know, normal. For example, this is exposing a real problem in our healthcare system, and you can imagine that although we were already advocating for healthcare reform before, we sure as hell are going to be advocating for it even more after this. And with those weaknesses, like for example, the lack of ventilators or the lack of beds in hospitals, with those inadequacies on display, you can bet that things are going to have to change. Or even like the small pieces, like for example, airlines are starting to ask for a bailout already and people are clamoring saying, well, if we're going to bail you out, we need some reform. Enough of these random fees and enough of these smaller seats just to drive up your profit margin that you then did not pour into a rainy day fund. So these are the little pieces that are going to change. But of course, first we got to get through what's in front of us. And the best way to do that is to not think about your individual self-liberty. It's not to think of, oh, the end is nigh. Because here's the thing, humanity survives even when humans don't. We've been through these pandemics before, and even though it's caused a lot of harm, we always get through it. And this is going to be one of those times. But the reason why we're going to have to put our own self-liberty to the side for a little bit and start making choices based on the community's needs and not our own as an individual is because that is the best way to spread the most good to everyone. So we're going to make it. It's going to be all right. Let's just practice what experts are telling us to do and take care of one another. I'll be coming back on Friday to drop our normal episode, whatever is normal now, um, which was actually supposed to be a funnier one on on swearing in history and times when it uh, turned criminal. So it's going to be part of a multi-part series. Look forward to that this Friday. Until then, be safe. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com. 